You're listening to the Press Board Podcast, the show where we talk to the most interesting people in marketing and media today and the businesses they lead. Today on the show, I'm chatting with Regina Buckley. Regina is the president, U.S., at Guardian News and Media. The Guardian is super well-known in Britain. I mean, it's been around for 200 years. And so in those terms, Guardian U.S., which recently celebrated its 10-year anniversary, is still really in its infancy. And yet what's interesting is it brings along this clear mission and purpose from across the pond. Regina and I dig deep into the trust structure of The Guardian and the journalistic mission at its core, and how it expresses itself through company culture, revenue, and the approach to the market. I hope you enjoy the show. Regina, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. I'm I'm very excited to be here. Well, where are you based out of right now? I'm sitting in an apartment on 107th Street in New York City on the west, upper, upper west side, sort of by Columbia University. Nice. Nice. I'm over in Vancouver, Canada. So other side, other side of the continent. That's why you asked how to pronounce my name. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got it. I do it with almost everybody now because even if their name is like John, where you can't yeah. mess it up. Like, what if they went by like Jean, right? And then I've just ruined the whole thing that they had going for several years. So yeah. I've just yeah. learned to ask every single time, just to make sure. Uh, well, I've lo- I love having you on the show. I'd like to explore how you got to your role, which you are the president, U.S. at Guardian News and Media, based in yeah. New York. Yeah. So let's unpack that first, and then I want to go backwards oh, into this. So the Guardian, which I mean, one of the myths, I think, around The Guardian is that it's it's this British. Which like, is British publication that happens yeah. to have, a, you know, be on the web in the U.S. too. We have a sizable office here. We have, you know, 70 plus journalists. We also have an Australian, a full operation in Australia. Um, in the U.S., here in New York, in addition to the journalists, there's a, what the British call a commercial team, a business side, pub side, as we say in the U.S., uh, and the pub side is a fully fledged ad sales team, uh, plus a finance team, HR, administration, all the normal stuff that you have in any fully operating business. We also have in the U.S., based in the U.S., another division of The Guardian, which is the org, which works with foundations, um, and that operation is all based in D.C., but we have... Um, news operations in New York primarily, but also in on the West Coast and in DC. Hmm. And how long has The Guardian been in the US for? We just had our 10 year anniversary, actually. Um, we had our 200th anniversary and our 10th anniversary at the same time. So we are officially 200 years old in Britain and 10 years old here. So. That's so interesting because even when you say 10 years old in the new media landscape, that's a decent amount of time. But then it when is. you compare it, you have 200 years. That's just an exceptional. What is the, I, I don't even know this. What is the oldest, you know, that's got to be up there with the oldest newspapers in the world, right? Yeah, How it has is... to be. I mean, I, I mean, look, my, uh, my historic, my career history is a lot about Time Inc. And I remember I started at Time Magazine when it was having its 75th anniversary. So put that into context of 200 years, it definitely blows anything in the US way out of the water, yeah. way out of the water. 
I remember going to London when I was backpacking and looking around at buildings and just realizing that these buildings were older than Canada by far. By yeah. Like hundreds of years, right? I always yeah. say that Vancouver is like a, it's like if you built a city, but you only built it in the last 35 years, right? Like most yeah. of the city is pretty much brand new. So what is that history of that 200 year history? What does it bring to the U.S. market? Because yes, you've been here for 10 years. That's still a good amount of time in the U.S. But with yeah. all of this history, plan, I guess the first question is, is why did The Guardian come to the U.S.? Well, I think, look, The Guardian is has a little bit of an unusual ownership structure in that we're owned by a private trust. Now, that in and of itself is not unique. But what is unusual about it is that the purpose of the trust is not to generate cash for people or any or, or anyone or any business in general. It's to continue to serve our journalistic mission. Um, and our journalistic mission is based around integrity, right? And so our mission as a business is to spread our journalistic integrity all over the world. So specifically, our mission, as stated by the trust, is to use clarity and imagination to build hope. And that is the purpose of the Guardian's existence. So when that is your purpose, we talk a lot about, a lot about purpose in business these days, we're lucky to have a very clear purpose. Um, why would you limit that purpose to one continent, right? So we, um, so we just, I mean, I obviously was not here when that decision was made, but it's a, it's a, a mission and an idea that I think speaks quite clearly globally in the same way that it speaks in, in the UK. And so we came and put down roots, yeah, 10 years ago here in the US. And you, so there is a different structure because, you know, a lot of corporations there, you know, they might have a mission, but it's to return to the shareholders a lot of times, which yeah. that, that different ownership structure would create different, even legal parts like fiduciary duties, et cetera, like who it is, who it is that you're supposed to be serving as your primary, yes. primary person. So yeah. let's back up a little bit. How did you end up coming to the Guardian. You've been there for just over three years now, I believe, or almost yeah, four. Yeah, yeah. So one year in this role and then two years as CFO and COO before that. And then before that, I was at, as I mentioned earlier, I was at Time Inc. for 20 years nice. from like cradle to grave professionally. Not exactly, but more or less. I grew up professionally at Condé. At, um, sorry, I was at Condé before I was at Time Inc., but I grew up professionally at Time Inc., um, and I came to The Guardian because a boss that I had and loved working for at Time Inc., a woman named Evelyn Webster, she's listening, I'll give her a big shout out, um, had gone to The Guardian as the CEO and was looking, she just needed some help in a couple of areas. And she knew, because we had worked together before, she knew she could work with me and she knew what my skill set was and it happened to fit in the areas that she needed. And so I literally just thought, yeah, sure, I'll try it. Like working on one brand at a time seemed very novel and interesting to me at that point. Um, and I left Time Inc. when Meredith came in and acquired it. And I mean, it was just a few weeks later, I was at The Guardian, uh, you know, opening up my spreadsheets. Yeah. And yeah. you you started out in the CFO and COO role. What yes. were you? What was your last roles at Timing? Because I imagine your career over that time frame covered lots of different roles within there. But yeah. where were you? Yeah, where were you right. Up? 
So I, um, I'm kind of an unusual, I have, my brain is a little bit like wired a little bit strangely because my mother is an artist and my father is an electrical engineer. So I I love analytical things and I love creative things too. Um, And so I've always been like a little bit of a square peg in a round hole. So the reason I spent so many years at Time Inc is that the finance roles there were unusual in that they crossed all the different areas of the business. So I had like a great view to strategy and I got to work with the editors and I got to work with the consumer marketing leads and I got to work with the publishers. And it was kind of like a general management role as much as it was a finance role. It was like a partnerships kind of thing. And so, and I loved, loved that. Um, But at one point in my career, we had a CEO came in from the outside. It was a woman named Laura Lang. She had worked at Digitas for most of her career um, and in consulting. And she had never really worked at a publishing company before. And she was in need of a chief of staff to kind of help her navigate. I had been there for a while. And like I just kind of got plucked out of my spreadsheets, dropped into the executive floor and got exposure to all kinds of like stuff I hadn't seen before. Strategy um, in particular was an area that I loved and found I had an aptitude for. And so then when Laura left, I went back down into the, you know, to the line and I had various roles. But my last, last role, just before I left Time Inc., I was heading up all of the platform partnerships. So with Snapchat and Google and Facebook were very, Facebook was like a huge it was it was in the middle of pivoting its video strategy, so we spent a lot of time working with Facebook then. Um, and I was working on digital business development and business operations. And then just before I left, um, I was managing the lifestyle brands, sort of just general managing them without the finance piece. So it was a very uh, big role. Um, but it was on, I was seated on the digital team. And, and for me, that was really what gave me the biggest challenge in learning was becoming a fully fledged. It was really my first time as a fully fledged, you know, part of the digital world organization. It's interesting that you have this upbringing that's, you know, electrical engineer and an artist. I always Mm -hmm. think that I had the similar thing. So my dad owned a construction business and my mom was like a fully fledged hippie, right? In the eighties. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was just this weird like my mom was doing yoga in the early 80s when it was weird and we had yogurt as kids and like that seems normal now yeah remember in like 84 that was just that was a strange house like why does it smell like yogurt in here why do you guys have so much yogurt and what is your mom doing over there right in 74 which is when i was a kid my mother was making cereal in the oven she used to bake cereal (laughs) right made your own cereal that's amazing yeah yeah (laughs) yeah but i do think it gives you like it works both sides of your brain in some way or the genetics passed down. That's why I got into advertising was I felt like it was, it was creativity with a business plan. Like I, I could never appreciate art just for art or that creative side, unless I was like, okay, cool. Now what is the math that is going? Yeah. What's the function of this beautiful (laughs) thing? Yes. And they can be tied together. So yes, it's really interesting as you get into you know, how data works and all the rest of it. So that's really, it's really interesting to see that you also came from this, 
you know, I don't even know how my parents, I do know how they met, but I was like, what is the similarity between, like, what is the crossover piece? Yeah. And I think they just probably fulfilled parts of each other that they didn't really have themselves, right? So, yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, I think your role is culminated, like being president and being the COO and general manager roles. That's because it's a very broad experience. Yeah. Power, right. That you yeah. Have. Like I, so the, the, you know, CFO, COO or chief of staff, all these things, they have different flavors depending on who you're reporting to. Right. But my boss, we needed a fine, like we needed a clean, organized finance function. And so I would spend a lot of time doing that. And then she'd be like, Hey, we, we need a new office. Can you delete, figure that out? Or like my final year in that role, it was, oh, we've got a, we've got a serious racial reckoning to, do, to deal with here. And like, we need to self-examine our newsroom in particular, but our organization as well. Can you like go figure that out? So these are very, uh, these are fungible uh, ideas and things. And so for me, it was always that like, I think of a spreadsheet, it's like a puzzle. But a project is like where you can be creative and thoughtful and um, and like exercise those other pieces of your brain. So you were at Time Magazine and now you're at The Guardian. And those are very different structures, very different organizations for a lot of reasons. What have you found is the biggest difference between your time at Time yeah. and now what is like at The Guardian? What are the biggest differences? Yeah, I'll tell you there's one huge difference that I didn't fully appreciate until I actually arrived at The Guardian, and that is this. So when I was, in the days when I was at Time Inc., I mean, this is not that long ago, four years ago, we were obsessed with scale. All we talked about all day long was scale for the purpose of advertising. Our pages had lots of ads in them. We had a big initiative to get as much video out as it was a very scale ads driven type of conversation. And when I came to The Guardian, it was not that way at all. And what I realized was it all it goes back to this mission that I was talking about before, because four years ago, six years ago, we're chasing scale like crazy people at Time Inc. Guardian is serving its reader. I'm, you know, obsessed with Facebook going from live to mid-roll. Guardian is serving its reader. And mm -hmm. it 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 was sort of like just kind of like the little engine that could, just like kind of plugging along at its mission as it had for the 200 years before. And you know, unceremoniously, unglamorously doing what it was there to do. And now it's like the guardian's time has come like yeah. scale for the sake of scale is no longer profitable everybody's like we need a closer relationship with our consumer yeah. and um and that is like one of my favorite things about working for the guardian is that you really are there for the reader and it, it's infused in every decision that gets made it's infused and i'm not just saying like uh, this is passed down to me and infused in the London culture, in the US culture, in the, it's not something that I'm creating on my own by any stretch, but I also feel a big responsibility to perpetuate that mission and that culture um, through the organization. So that actually is kind of nice to like, it's also our time to be a purpose-driven organization 
in a day like today when all these crazy things are going on and people are wondering what the meat, what they're what the meaning of their work is, right? We have like, it's nobody at the Guardian is wondering what the purpose is of what they do every day. And so for me, that's a huge tool in recruiting. It's a huge tool in motivating. It gives me an advantage um, versus other advantages that I may have had when I was at Time Inc in managing teams and keeping people motivated and and focused on, on what it is that we do every day. It's interesting because, I mean, it's this reader-centric view, it's this mission-driven, but was it hard to get used to not worrying about what was happening with Instagram that week? Like you get, there's some sort of adrenaline rush that comes with chasing shiny objects, right? There's got to be a reason that all of us publishers, I used to work in the publisher space too, why you're always chasing the next big thing. It's this highly competitive, you got to watch what your competitors are doing. What was that like? to shift your brain around a new method. Yeah. I mean, look, I, maybe I was too far into how sausage was being made, but like we were like, if it's a beta, we're in it. If yeah. it's a test, like who is the new product? What, I don't care what it is. Like yeah. we'll figure out a way to like shoehorn our products. And it was never a, it, it, for me, with my analytical brain, it was like, wait, shouldn't we decide where we want to go first and then fit the pieces in behind that? But there, and I and I don't mean to diminish certainly the leaders of Time Inc. at that time. It's it, it's just the way it was, right? We were all our relevance. Oh, and this will help us when we start talking about, I'm sure, what's going on in the bigger industry today. But like our relevance was about buzz. Our The market's view of us and our worth was around like how many betas we were in. Are you partnering with Facebook? Are you doing this thing? Are you in, are you, you know, are you the forefront of AMP? Whatever it was um, that happened at that time to be the currency for relevancy, which is another thing I'm so grateful has, is not so true today. You know, Mm -hmm. that landscape has changed dramatically in just a few years, dramatically. So I- yeah. So what, to answer your question succinctly, I don't miss it at all. It wasn't an adjustment. It was like, oh, yeah. great. I just had to focus on stuff that matters, you know? Yeah. And everything does come around like that. Like uh, the Guardian's been around for 200 years and I feel like it's seen so many things happen almost as an entity. It's like, that's fine. That'll be for five years. But if you play this game long enough, it's always going to be focused on the primary customer we have is our audience and that audience is the only thing that we're going to have to care about. I mean, it's much easier possibly when you don't have shareholders saying, Hey, I expect a 40% return over the next three years versus 12% or whatever it is. But that audience look, the reason I think that it's become popular again, isn't because people all of a sudden realized, Hey, we should really care about the audience. It's because subscriptions, affiliate, like these have become some of the biggest revenue drivers and they also just happen to be entirely focused on the audience. Do you yeah. still, I mean, the Guardian still has to make money. It still needs to fund its journalism. So where is the focus on that and how does that relate to your role there? Yeah. So I, um, when I joined the Guardian in the U.S., we were, we have three revenue, three primary revenue streams, advertising, um, reader donations, 
And then we have the philanthropic arm that I talked to you about a little while ago, which is somewhat separate because it's, it a hundred percent funds journalism. And so, but the rest of the business, the piece that I'm in there, I have a wonderful colleague who manages that business globally. For the two main revenue streams, the advertising revenue stream and the reader revenue stream, when I first joined, we were, call it 60-40 advertising reader donations. Today we are switched around and our reader donations are growing at a much faster pace than our advertising. Um, and so for me, the, the focus on, on growth comes first and foremost through the reader donations. I've always been of the belief anyhow that the whole point of advertisers coming to you is they want your relationship with your reader. And so regardless of whether we're advertising focused or reader focused, like it's just good business to be, from my point of view, to always be focused on that relationship that you have with the reader. And I think it's just the market is maturing. The digital market is maturing to a point where it's becoming clear that that is where sustainable revenue exists. So, um, so yeah, so I manage a bigger team on the advertising side. Um, but a lot of my time is spent working with our small reader team here in the U S which has a huge infrastructure back in London, supporting it, supporting us and just making sure that the U S is front of mind in all of the efforts that happen on a global basis out of HQ. And do you think that advertising and audience are in competition with each other in any way. I, I know when subscriptions started happening uh, to a bigger, bigger way, people were saying, oh, well, you can't have, you can't serve advertising to your subscribers because your subscribers are paying for this content and advertising is just the tax on free content is how it was thought of. How yeah. do you see the interplay of advertising and an audience focus at The Guardian? Right, so, so true to our mission, we do not have a paywall. So we request donations, but we don't ever block anyone, at least not right now. The subscriptions that we sell are tied more, they're, they're not tied to journalistic access, they're tied to uh, experiences, like, like they're tied to our apps, right? So you pay for premium experience, but you always have access to the journalism, no matter what, at least today. This is a sustainable business model for us, which is, you know, right on. So, so that really is where, so we don't have that direct competition by and large, the, what we know about our donations in the U S is that Americans donate because they want to support our journalistic mission and they want to support a free press and Americans are extremely generous givers compared to givers around the globe. I would say they don't demand that you're there, they don't demand that value exchange that you might under you might assume. And when I say that value exchange, I don't mean that we don't provide them value. I mean they're they don't they don't wait until they spend an hour with us a day before they're like, all right, we'll give you five dollars. They look at us, they see what we do, they see hopefully our our pages are not all jammed up with ads, nothing's popping in front of your face. We're not serving you video right now unless it's actually helpful to you as a consumer. Um, 
and they say, I can get behind these guys. I know, I know news journal and journalism in general is in trouble. I'm going to, I'll give them five bucks or I'll give them 20 bucks or, yep. and that by and large is how, um, how we fund our business in the U S it's interesting because the donation to me is always, I'm like, how does that work? Where you're just, I see it on Wikipedia all the time. I did yes. donate to Wikipedia one time. I, I can't believe I haven't, I use Wikipedia so much. And yeah. if Wikipedia had a $5 a year subscription, I'd probably pay for it. But then I would expect Wikipedia to, I would base it on my usage of Wikipedia, whether yeah. I paid or not. Whereas I think the time that I donated, I just thought Wikipedia should be a thing. And yeah. so I'm going to, and I, I imagine that's similar. What switches with the donation is you're saying, even if I consume none of this content, yes. I'm still willing to donate because I think it's important for yes. the world, right? Yes. Which is a different way to look at it than I'll pay you $100 a year. I expect, you know, 14 articles a month that are exclusive to me and other subscribers. I don't want ads on them, et cetera, right? Whereas if you're donating towards this cause or mission, you're probably okay with, hey, if they're working with some good advertisers that are also funding this mission, let's get as many people funding this as possible. And that's a different, that's quite different, I believe, than the subscription model, even though it's still audience revenue in a way. Yeah, and we have, look, we just, we just announced this week, we have a million, globally, we have a million people who are signed up to subscriptions or recurring donations. But I think that in, for Americans, anyhow, the, this is not a transaction. This is like an emotional, this is emotional support. We support what you are doing. We love that you are dedicated to no paywall, which are not having a paywall. We love that you're dedicated to facts and reason and solving the climate crisis. And I'm going to support that. It's a, it's as much an emotional thing, I think, as it is a transact more perhaps an emotional thing. Slightly transactional thing, mostly an emotional thing. Right. Well, let's yeah. talk about the, you know, the climate thing, because I know you've worked on the advertising side. I'm, I'm always curious about how the advertisers can play a role with the Guardian. Yes. So maybe you can speak uh, to a campaign for the climate pledge that you guys, I know you guys did. Yeah. So, um, so we did a campaign with the climate pledge this year, which is a consortium of companies that got together when Trump pulled out of the Paris Pl climate accords and basically said, Okay, I, he's not in, but we're still in, and here we're gonna set some goals for ourselves, and here's what we're gonna do. And um, and Amazon, who is a critical partner in that project and that consortium, funded is a big partner to us and uh, funded a program to promote the climate pledges efforts. So this was a big partnership for us. They funded. Um, a section on the site, which was amazing. And they basically, through this partnership, we were we were able to support the editors creating um, a journalistic section called Greenlight, um, dedicated to the corporation's role in solving the climate crisis. So on the one hand, this is perfect because it's like, oh, mission and advertiser align. On the other hand, it's like, Oh, mission and advertiser align. Like we got to figure out how to do this with integrity, right? Because we don't want, because it is, this content is a, even though it's completely separate, it is appearing because of the partnership of the climate pledge. 
And so um, it was, it for me, it was a, it was relatively early on in my tenure in this role. And it was really where this idea of me bringing my whole 360 degrees self with my analytical brain and my morals completely into a discussion because there were times where I'd say to the salesperson or the marketer that we were working with, well, do you think that's right? Like, do we think that that's the right approach? And there was plenty of stuff that didn't even make it to be asked of an editor because we kind of together said, you know what, that's not right for our mission. Let's try it a different way. Um, and so it's a partnership. It was a big partnership. It's one I'm really, really proud of. One of the team is so proud of. Um, and for me, though, I highlight it because it is, um, for me, at the corner of like what, what, where, how advertising fits into the greater paradigm of any media company, but particularly, but particularly for us when we're out, you know, talking about how mission driven we are all the time. Yeah. Right. Like if you could have all those types of programs from an advertiser's perspective, you'd be sitting in a good spot because you're right. You're, you're maintaining editorial integrity and separation from it, but you're still having, I mean, it's not that much different than audience donations. It's like an advertiser says, Hey, we're going to support this mission. It aligns with the mission that we also have around this climate uh, pledge. So let's go ahead and do it together. Right. We'll yes. provide some funding. I've always thought, you know, I was, I've been big in branded content for a long time and people said, yeah. well, that's just a advertiser paying for stuff. I said, yeah. I said, but somebody's paying no matter what for everything. So what if you could take an advertiser's budget, which are enormous, like budgets for advertising. I've, I always tell like family and friends how much money is in advertising and they can't believe it. They can't believe yeah. how much money is spent on advertising yeah. when not, not anyone really knows for sure what works and what doesn't. Uh, but I think that that idea that if you could take these advertising budgets and use them towards some mission focused programs, like what power you would have, because you would never be able to fund that type of thing just on editorial budgets alone for the most part. So, That's right. And I think that you're right, actually, yeah, I mean, you're starting to see that more and more like the Guardian, we are because we do, we are so serious about putting our money where our mouth is. Um, we are, we do. Uh, have a lot of clients coming to us about corporate social responsibility budgets. And I see those growing certainly over the years. And it makes sense because consumers are demanding more from companies. We don't just want, you know, be, well, we don't take fossil fuel advertising, but like if it were BP, BP, I, I don't, I don't want to see a BP ad talking about how amazing they are. I want to see like, what are you actually what are you actually doing about what you, how, the way that you're contributing to what's going on out in the world? Like, I don't believe your ads. I don't, you know. And so for us, it is a core area of growth because, look, there's a lot of, I see it every day. There's a lot of um, media companies out there creating like green products for the purpose of running social, corporate social responsibility budgets. And, um, but for me, of course, I'm going to say the best place to do it is a place that actually does take that stuff seriously and that does walk away from money, such as not taking fossil fuels or yeah. like we are very serious about um, you are actually supporting you're, you in partnering with us. You're going a little bit deeper. Yeah, it's interesting because yeah. even like my reaction to saying no to any advertising dollars is so foreign. Like being yes. kind of raised in the North American media landscape, 
like not taking fossil fuel money is like well, that's an entire huge category of advertising you have to be very centered on this mission and have the corporate structure that supports it i think that trust is more Absolutely. important than people realize because if you had a large number of shareholders public company it's difficult to make some of those choices because you're having to look at it through a different lens so what is the future of the guardian look like in the US as far as you see it. I imagine you've put a lot of thought into this being there for almost four years so far, but moving from uh, a different type of you know media company in the past. So what does the future look like, do you think, for the Guardian? Yeah. So and just before I do that, I do want to just make uh, take a moment. You just did something that made me want to say like I'm realize I realize we're in such a privileged position being owned by this private trust to be able to do these things. I don't I certainly do not look down my nose, especially after having worked at a public company for all of those years, there are very real and difficult market uh, challenges out there for all of the companies. And we all find the way that works best for us. So just to put that out there, I'm not uh, certainly not looking down my nose at anybody. Um, but for The Guardian, look, I, I mean, it gets back to our journalistic mission, right? We have an office of 100 people right now in New York. I want an office of 200 journalists, 300 journalists, 400 journalists. like. And I want, we, we, for better, for worse, we have figured out a way to do it profitably and sustainably. We give a net positive contribution back to London. It's been growing every year. Part of the way we do that is that we're supported by a lot of journalism that's created out of London and out of Australia. But for us, it's about expanding our journalistic footprint. And I think the reality of today is that that means expanding into more medium media, uh, which is which means audio, more audio, more newsletters, just being more creative about the way that we approach our storytelling. But for us, at the end of the day, it, it's all going to be about the journalism. It's all going to be about the storytelling and um, and and long may we long may we grow. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I was asking you these same questions when you're at time, I bet you would be a bit more focused on, hey, we're really going to move quick into video or, hey, the e-commerce seems like the play. And I agree with you. There's there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's I always think, look at the business itself and you'll figure out what the motivation of the business is. And if the business is in charge of bringing revenue in for shareholders, like profit for shareholders, then understand that that's what the job is. So they're going to go after advertisers yeah. so that they can generate revenue and turn that into profit. That's what companies do. And a trust uh, is quite different. Is it hard to communicate the differences when your average audience, let's say I come and I look at, you know, something on the New York Times, I look at Time, and then I come over to The Guardian. Is it hard to get across that idea that, hey, this is a different type of organization? Yeah, I mean, look, it's hard to get across an idea, period, in the US media land. Like this, we just, um, my, the editor-in-chief and I are partners in in the guardian in the us we just did our first board presentation in love to london and it's like the there's a page that we did that's like this is what the us media landscape looks like and it is a, it's a visual representation it's like even if you cut out our little corner of the world it's just mashed mashed in there with so many different competitors yeah. so our talk about challenges for a minute our biggest challenge in the us is just simply brand awareness right, right. 
people don't, people have like a vague notion that we're a British organization. So never mind then getting to the nuances of why we're different from the New York Times or the Washington Post or Time, uh, I don't want to call it Time Magazine because it's Time Digital or the Time, the Time brand. Like we're not even there yet. So so for us getting to that point of having two, three, 400 journalists in, in our newsroom is definitely going to be rooted in brand awareness. And that is something that the team and I um, are very focused on as we head into next year, trying to move that needle a little bit. Right. The product is so good. It's always focused on the audience. You just need more people to know about it because people weren't raised. I mean, I'm Canadian, so I was raised with Britain being the Commonwealth, right? So we have like the Queens on our money, like all the stuff is still there, right? But uh like people were raised with the New York Times and USA Today and whatever the thing is, they weren't maybe raised with the Guardian coming to the doorstep every day. So you do have to introduce it to a yes. generation of people. Uh, yeah. it's, it's quite interesting. That's quite interesting challenge to be running into. But I imagine because it's only been 10 years out of a 200 year history that there's a big upside on this. Like there's a lot of green space to be able to go after in the market. Is that something as far as your KPIs go? So if, yeah. if just revenue isn't the KPI, which it usually is at a media organization, what would be your single biggest goal for the Guardian? Like if you could put it in your analytical way. Uh, yeah. I know you said 200 journalists. That's a good That's a good one there. Um, yeah, what would you say is your the number you put up on a wall somewhere? The number meaning like the KPI? Well, the KPI is audience. Again, a very clear mission. The audience, it's like it's audience for us, right? And I would say it's audience and engagement because we, as I was saying before, Americans are very generous, but they'll come read an article and go. Maybe they'll come a few days later, but for me, I'd like to hold them a little bit longer. And I think part of that is in this idea of expanding our journalists so that the the newsroom can create, like right now we are very focused on news. Um, we're, we'd love to expand our footprint um, further into more lifestyle areas, I'm sure. Right. So, uh, yeah, so are you able to share, I'm curious about like what this audience expansion looks like, is it do you hope that you can double your audience in three years or is it more incremental? What it, like, what's your ambition for The Guardian over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we can double our audience in three years. I would love to say we could double our audience in three years, but I, for us, um, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to commit to what my audience growth is going to be, but I, I think we could double our audience in five or 10 years. I definitely do. I mean, I are we are right now in our comm score competitive set. We're number 13. Yeah. Um, but we're not that far behind everybody else. And so um, so for me, I do think it's this dual thing of more reaching more, more people, more humans and getting more engagement th- with those humans once we once we get them in our world. Yeah. And I think from there comes like when you talk about like I really do admire so much what The New York Times has been doing in creating new verticals and new areas to to speak to consumers in. I'm a huge fan of Wirecutter. I use it all the time. Um, I I have a thing against the food app, no offense to the Times, just because I started with a basic subscription and now 
I see very clearly what I get charged for the food subscription yeah. and I'm a big food 52 girl and I, you know, I get great content over there. So, but I, but I, for me tr starting to like wrap around people and become more part of their everyday, I think would be, again, this is really is getting into journalistic goals, which are the purview of my partner in crime or editor in chief. But I think he would agree with me that growing audience and growing the engagement is kind of the way to go. Yeah, this is so, uh, I, I really appreciate you being on the show because this is such a unique organization and it's such a different conversation. It, but here's I'm the thing. Okay, so I was thinking about this the other day. So when I was at Time Inc., you're ex you said it a minute ago and you were exactly right. You said, if you were at a big media company, you'd be thinking about what are my, my pillars are e-commerce, my pill video, and that's not actually a goal it's a product right yeah. and and i almost wonder somebody asked me not long after time inc was bought i was at an industry conference and this guy i was sitting next to this really smart guy and he was like what do you think happened like what what happened and i was like i didn't there was no answer that came immediately to mind but with time and experience what I would say today is I don't know that we were focused on consumers. Like I still, I have a couple of magazine subscriptions. The customer service there is like, I feel like it's 1995. Yeah. Like somehow I think a lot, and I don't mean to like get on print because I think it's something that it, you can see it very clearly that way, but I think it's something kind of infused in our media culture, our media business culture, which is that because we all grew up focused on advertising and because the editors had an audience delivered to them every month without really having to think about it, there is this mindset in which we're very focused on products and B2B and we're not actually focused on it sounds arrogant for me to say it this way, but we're not only so focused on customers. And this yep. is what kind of, this is my big eye opening when I got to the Guardian is, oh, they've just been focused on customers all this time. Yeah. And so we're ready, you know, we're ready. We're, we're well primed for like digital 2.0. I think just the fact that your customer is your audience is the difference maker because that's not always true in the media world. Often your customer is your advertiser. If you just yeah. look at it just from your, you had a CFO role, like if you just looked at it as where does the revenue come in that supports this organization and that revenue is their customer. If you're doing reader donations, that is your customer, right? Like they are yeah, literally paying you in some way or subscriptions or even yeah. to a point affiliate can be considered that because it's the audience that is making the transaction that has a commission. Uh, I think this is, you're definitely at the right time because you know how you said the Guardian doesn't chase things, but it's kind of nice when the industry comes to a place that the Guardian already is sitting at, right? So yes. there's nothing to know, chase. People are no. chasing you in a way. Right. And believe me, it came like all those years, like we, we are much smaller in the US than Time Inc was. And like it came... For me, like you can sit and talk all you want about what your purpose is, but like it's like you said before, when you're willing to show what you what you what you can walk away from, 
that's where you're exhibiting your integrity. And so when we walked away from fossil fuels, the sales team by and large was like all on board because they know that when they go out there, the bigger story that they're telling is about our integrity and having actual proof points that show we're ready to put our money where our mouth is, is very effective in the, in, in the process of working with partners and, and growing our business within the realm of what it is that we want to be, you know? Yeah, it's an exciting time. I've loved having you on the show. Is there an ask that you have from our audience? Like, is it a big time for reader donations right now? Yes, like of course of it year? is. It's year end. <laughs> That's what I, was I love say. how you teed that up. Thank you so much. So one of the things um, unique to the Guardian, to what we do, one of the things we spend a lot of time on in the U.S. is that unlike in other areas of the world, year end is a big giving time for us, right? We just had Giving Tuesday. And it is the end of the year. And so I would like to ask anyone out there who supports the journalistic mission of The Guardian to please consider giving us some money. And if you don't know what The Guardian is, like many people in the US market, um, I would like to ask you to just spend two minutes today going to our website and just checking us out. Well, everybody listening. Check out The Guardian. It's the end of the year. Put in your reader donation. You know that The Guardian's always going to be focused on you. So, uh, Regina, I loved having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was super fun. Thanks for listening to the Press Board Podcast. Hey, do you have any burning questions about affiliate marketing, e-commerce, or branded content, and you'd like me to ask one of our guests here on the show? Send your questions to info at pressboardmedia.com and listen to future episodes and we'll see if we can get it answered for you. That's info at pressboardmedia.com. Thanks for listening. This is Jared Grimm with the Press Board Podcast. Catch you next time.